There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. GM, I'm Dan Roberts. I'm Stacey Elliott. And I'm Stephen Graves. And this is... GM from Decrypt. Okay, GM, GM to all, and introducing first-time co-hosting Kate Irwin. GM Kate, welcome. GM, glad to be here. Yeah, this will be fun. Uh, Right up your alley as one of our best uh, NFT beat reporters. You've been all over the ape world, and of course, that includes other side, and so we're bringing on two of the Board Ape Yacht Club co-founders. Glad to have you co-hosting for them. Yeah, I really want to hear from these guys. They, they don't do a lot of press, and I think it would be really great to get their take on everything from other side to how they feel about themselves and decentralization as such a big company. All that kind of good stuff, I think, would be really great to hear straight from the source. Yeah, there's so much here. There's so much meat on the bone. I have a feeling we're going to go a little longer than we usually do. Um, This is also our first GM podcast episode with two main guests instead of just one. So yeah, lots to ask them about. I mean, people sure have opinions when it comes to Bored Apes. You know, I, I remember I wrote a column. It was already months ago. I thought it was pretty benign, but I just wrote that uh, the apes have become the poster child face of all NFTs. And in some ways, I do think that's a negative. You know, it's not necessarily the Board Ape Yacht Club founders' faults. Uh, and then I said that there's a little bit of a cult-like aspect to the Board Ape Yacht Club. And boy, my Twitter mentions were ruined for like two weeks. I, I think the NFT space is so community driven. It's it can be really intense and once you get, you know, the community on board with something, they will raid your tw- your Twitter, your tweets and yeah. and I think time moves really fast in this space too. So it'll be really interesting to see where these guys are at now and then maybe in 6 months to a year where they're at once the other side and other things really start launching and really kicking into high gear. Yeah, that's so true. And I know these guys have a a creative kind of writer background, but at this point, you know, they've gone corporate. I'm sure they would say otherwise and we'll ask them, but you know, that these kind of fun, playful, renegade, um, ape drawings have transformed into like a big corporate, you know, billion dollar company. So what does that mean and how does that change how they approach things? Yeah. Cool. Well, let's bring them on. This'll be fun. Okay, Wiley and Greg, or should I say Gordon and Garga, GM, thanks for joining us. GM, good morning. Good morning. So let's just dive right in. Are NFTs dead? (laughs) (laughs) No. Not yet. um, You know, in seriousness, I mean, we saw, I think a week or two ago, there was a a Bloomberg headline, and these things rocket around crypto Twitter and the rest of the internet pretty fast. And it said, you know, NFT volume is down 97% from the peak. And, you know, we can nitpick over, I think there are a couple data dashboards that they left out, but 
you know, this is kind of the narrative lately, especially from people who obviously it confirms what they already believed. They already thought NFTs were, were stupid. But um, what does each of you make of the current kind of vibe in crypto and NFT land because of the bear market? I mean, you guys have been in crypto long enough to know that this is kind of just what like Normie Land says about anything related to crypto every single cycle, right? I mean, you know, in 2017, you saw uh, the exact same sentiment. And you could, I think, trace this back to like every advancement in technology going back probably to the wheel. Someone was probably just like, yeah, that fuck that thing. You know, I mean, like it's kind of just par for the course. Um, all of the Yuga properties are continuing to do pretty well, as far as, far as I can tell. Um, weirdly enough, I just saw a stat the other day that like um, Yuga itself, the NFTs, uh, accommodate for like what is like 48% of the, the total NFT market, which is a little, no pressure, no pressure. Um, but uh, no, I think, I think the market's still doing very well. I mean, there's obviously like, um, you know, a lot of the projects that didn't have great teams, you know, uh, thoughtful utility roadmaps attached to them, et cetera. I think those projects are obviously falling out of favor for probably good reason. The same way that like Denticoin in 2017 didn't wow, really Denticoin. continue to do well. That is a throwback. You remember that? Yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah. You know? And I think it's kind of like the same, right? It's like, yeah, the, the, in every bubble, there's going to be Denticoins of the world and there's going to be Bitcoins and Ethereums and, and Solana and, you know, and, you know, it's just kind yeah, of the speaking, way it is. Speaking of, um, Yuga having such a, a big market share of the NFT landscape. Um, what are your thoughts on this idea of decentralization that everyone in crypto, you know, opines about and says is very important? You know, we need decentralization. We can't have too many um, singular companies uh, holding such a large share of the of the pie. And and obviously, Yuga is is taking up a lot of that that landscape right now. Um, how how do you guys reckon with that? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> We want to be good stewards. Um, we want everybody to win, um, and that you know that's really how we think about it. And in terms of decentralization, we also think a lot about ownership and about trying to use our projects to create sandboxes for other people to participate in. That was part of the thinking behind the way the approach that we've taken to our commercial rights or IP rights. If you own a board ape, you can essentially do whatever you want with that board ape. And that's obviously, you know, as we acquired CryptoPunks and MeBits, that was integral um, to that acquisition for us, that we would decentralize the IP in that way. Um, and I think that helps create a really vibrant ecosystem where it's, you know, it it's easy to claim that Yuga is this monolithic thing when in actuality, there's a lot of uh, organic energy coming up and a groundswell from the community constantly. There's entire projects like Jenkins the Valet and other things that are, you know, have no relationship to us, no formal relationship to us whatsoever, except that they were born out of the community and now they're off to the races doing their own thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the right way to look at it, that we've decentralized the intellectual property itself and that, you know, on day two, I was watching people figure out how to commercialize their ape and create derivatives and sell artwork around their ape. And now flash forward to today, almost two years later, where you have Snoop Dogg and his son Champ creating multiple different brands based on the IP of their ape. You have Jenkins the Valet. You've got people like uh, uh, Non-Fungible Films creating whole uh, 
you know, narrative worlds around it. You've got Seth Green utilizing his ape in an upcoming TV show. You know, I mean, it's, it's uh, we, and we have nothing to do with any of it, right? They don't need our permission. So in that sense, it's a permissionless Let me ask you guys a little bit more about that. You know, when you say what's great about it is if you own your ape, you can do whatever you want with it. Is the inverse also true? I mean, are you guys or is Yuga also interested in eventually helping owners enforce when non-owners use it? You know, is that part of the IP rights is, you know, I, I always famously use the example from, I'm aging myself, but frat t-shirts used to be a big thing. And they always use like Bart Simpson or Calvin and Hobbes or Snoopy, right? And technically like that's not allowed, but everyone kind of does it and, and no one really cares. What's the kind of route for an ape owner to do if someone puts their ape on a t-shirt without asking? We want to be advocates and help the community um, in any way that we can. And so this is obviously a very nascent space. This is a nascent system. I don't think there's like a silver bullet answer here, except that we are very actively talking to people in the community and want to be sensitive to any kinds of issues that they bring up in that, in that whole space. Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, you know, I think because it is so early, a lot of people are trying to figure out exactly what they own, right? And um, it might be a good way to ask you guys, what are some of the earlier collections or projects that influenced you? I mean, it's funny for us at Decrypt, I mean, I think of the boom before the boom as having started with NBA Top Shot. And of course, now things have really evolved since then. But mm -hmm. the thing about Top Shot that I think was smart, of course, maybe the true crypto, you know, DGENs didn't love this, but it was sort of like a non-crypto way to get into NFTs. I mean, you could pay with your credit card, you could, you know, I think there are people buying them who never had any idea how NFTs actually work or that they were interacting with blockchain. Um, but now things have, have evolved from there. Um, is that something that you think is going to have to kind of advance further the understanding of, you know, what are you really getting? What are you really buying? I think so to some degree. I mean, to answer your first question, though, the things that inspired us, we got into crypto in 2017, Greg and I. Um, and my first exposure to NFTs was, I think, the same as Greg's, which was through CryptoKitties. There was that sort of like that moment where it just sort of took over crypto Twitter for a little while. And, and I bought a few CryptoKitties. And, um, you know, it was, it was exciting being a part of that, but you didn't, it didn't feel um, super collectible at first. Um, it, the model didn't quite make sense. It felt more like a, a technological game or some kind of experiment, much the same as, as CryptoPunks did at the time. And I, I don't think many people, there were some who had the foresight, but we, certainly Greg and I didn't have the foresight to see the possibility for utility with NFTs um, in 2017. And then, yeah, I think Top Shot definitely played a role in this last bull run, in this last sort of like uh, explosion. Um, but the project that captured our attention, and I, I, I'm not saying like we're super fans of it or anything, but the project that captured everyone's attention was a project called Hash Masks. And it, mostly it was because it was the first time since CryptoKitties that I'd really seen crypto Twitter specifically get involved in NFTs again. And the project made like $10 million and it's sort of like, um, but for guys like Greg and I who weren't, the best traders, who weren't the best investors, who weren't engineers. Um, we were just creative writers, right? That was our background. Um, we were like, oh, this is an opportunity for us to sort of like do what we're good at, tell a story, uh, art direct, um, build communities um, that, you know, you don't necessarily need to know a ton about the technology uh, to get involved in the space. And um, it, it, it seemed to us more like a, mm. suddenly a canvas had been created um, and that we could start yeah, I, I'd love to. Yeah, it's just like this new medium. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd love to to dive into that a little bit deeper. Um, 
I know you guys both did MFA uh, programs. I also did an MFA program. I studied fiction writing. And so I, I sort of am coming at this from like uh, a writer angle. I, I would love to know that like now you guys are these tech founders of this billion dollar company. Does this MFA experience play into into your day to day at all? Like, do you feel like it does or are one day you guys just getting ready to go like, you know, retire on an island and write some novels, you know? No, I think this has become our novel. It's so funny uh, when we first got interviewed by the New Yorker, and you can relate to this as an MFA student, I'm sure. It was like we were being interviewed by the New Yorker, and uh, we both took a moment uh, midway through the interview, and we were just like, "Can you believe that this is why we're finally getting Sorry. in the New Yorker? Yeah. Not as a not as a poet, not as a short story writer, but for board apes." Um, it was a very funny moment for us, but, but just for clarification, I didn't do an MFA. I dropped out of college cause I got sick. Uh, but I was on, well on my way to get an MFA. Greg got an MFA in poetry. Um, I think it informs everything we do so much so that, uh, very recently I hired, uh, one of my mentors from college, um, who taught me everything I know about writing. Um, I think it informed the, the pressure cooker situation of uh, a short story workshop in particular for me, um, taught me everything I know about how to critique art and how to think through um, making art better, making creative ideas better. Um, you know, the, the discipline that was involved uh, helps me on a day-to-day -day basis for sure. Yeah, I think the, the DNA of just beating up an idea for hours and hours with a friend trying to figure out what like the right path is, that's something that was you know, cored up our relationship as friends and, and has been extremely core to our relationship as, as founders. And, and frankly, also something that we were scared about as the company was going to scale, like looking back, if there's anything I regret, I think it's that we didn't hire more sooner, you know, in January of this year, we were like 11 people today. We're 85, you know, probably going to be over a hundred by the end of the year. And that's great. And the thing I'm most proud of is that like the creative energy in the company is, has flourished and been amazing, but it's something we were really protective about because we thought that's where the magic was that like, Hey, this is only working because like why and Greg are on the phone for six hours a day, like beating up an idea of, of like what the next cool fun thing would be. And like, how do you like formalize that? Because while we're this tech company in a way, this blockchain company, what we really are is we're like, you know, more like a lifestyle brand or a storytelling company. And we're, and we're kind of publishing to the blockchain and, and trying to be very acutely aware of how people interact with things and, and not so much, you know, tech for tech's sake. Yeah, we're, we're very much a creative first company. And, and to add on to what Greg says, I think it was a lot of my fault that like not wanting to <laughs> expand the company sooner. We, we, that being protective of a creative process is difficult when you grow and scale a thing. It's almost as if like every time you, uh, a company grows by another half, it's like everything kind of starts to break down and, you know, we're first time founders. Right. And so we're learning that lesson as we go. And, uh, it took us a while to trust others, not just from the creative lens, but from, uh, from the business development sense or from the partnership sense or anything, you know, even social media, it was like every, every, everything at first was so delicate to us and it's become, less so as we learn to trust others in the process. And part of that is that we brought on um, a wonderful CEO, my old friend, Nicole Muniz, to come help us run this. And then she brought in people from her agency, something new um, in an aqua hire. And then, and, you know, things have kind of so blossomed. Is that 80 then. to hundred people at Yuga Labs by the end of the year? Oh, That's yeah. correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think over a hundred 
Over 100. Yeah, yeah. I imagine a, a good portion of those people aren't even working on on the apes, right? I mean, you've got punks, you've got whatever else you guys up to. We've created uh, yep. buckets around punks, Mebits. Uh, other side is a massive project. We're developing blockchain games. We have a team now, which was the hardest to build out, actually. It was the, the BAYC team, which is now coming together as we speak and is doing amazing work. Um, and then just all of the nuts and bolts and everything in between, everything from social media to PR to a bunch of process producers, project managers, um, the massive creative studio that we're building. Um, we're building a team of creative technologists who are just kind of like the new, uh, I've been calling them the Yuganeers, but they're, you know, like, like the Imagineers. They're just kind of like our, our creative ninjas, you know. It's a terrible name. I know. I don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> I just keep thinking it's funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're just, we're, we're doing so much, you know, and, and it's funny, like everyone's always like, uh, how do you prioritize? And it's like, oh, I don't prioritize. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, we, we do it's everything hard. all, all, all the time. Everything. There's too much opportunity. There's too much fun. Everything all, it's so, it's so much fun to just like, uh, especially as a founder, I get to like go in on everything and just like uh, weigh in a little bit here and there all day long. It's uh, t- talking about it as a business and, and you guys as business people, I mean, it's a good segue um, I wanted to ask about when you were, you know, quote unquote doxed um, a while back and when, you know, they released your identities. Obviously, when we introduced this, I said your names, you know, you guys are good with it now. You guys have your real names displayed as part of your Twitter names, I noticed today. Um, you know, looking back on it now, and obviously you've, you've grown comfortable with, with being out there, we're, we're seeing your faces. Why did that matter so much? Why did that seem like such a big deal at the time? I think the journalists are the ones who blew that mm-hmm. kind of out of proportion more than anything else. I mean, look, you know, if you've been in crypto and you guys have for a long time, you know, pseudo anonymity is par for the course, right? I mean, it's like every crypto project starts with a pseudo anonymous founder, Frank, frankly. Um, you know, we still don't know who, who made Bitcoin. You know what I mean? Like, we don't know his identity. I mean, it's like this is just uh, part of the landscape. Um, I think... Uh, at the time, we wanted to be pseudonymous. The government knew who we were. Our employers knew who we were. Our partners knew who we were. We were in Zoom meetings showing our faces all day long. Um, and I think we just kind of wanted the, to come out, you know, uh, and reveal ourselves under our own, on our own terms. Of course, a, a journalist felt that uh, uh, differently, that uh, no one running a, a massive company should be allowed to be pseudonymous. And, you know, I guess that's their, uh, their prerogative. How about you, Greg? Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty well said. Um, I will say, as time has gone on, it's been amazing to be able to like just meet people, give them a hug at Ape Fest. Like the, the first Ape Fest was pretty surreal for us. Where yeah, we were completely pseudonymous. We had, and yet we were throwing a party for two thousand people in a warehouse and had like a thousand people on a yacht, and we're just like you know hanging out basically. Like I was giving out wristbands. Like I was, an, you know, people thought I was an intern basically, and it was great. Um, but so it, I, I will say, I think it's the thing that's taken the most adjusting to is just that we're, yeah, we're first time founders. We're not from Silicon Valley. We don't have, um, you know, I was a, a book editor and a poet. And so, um, you know, it's, it's just a, a big change of pace for me. Yeah. I mean, it really has been a blessing and a curse ultimately. I mean, it was, it was bound to happen eventually. And we just hoped we had been able to do it on our own terms, but, um, and, uh, but yeah, it's been a, like getting at the, you know, as Greg said at the first eight fest, which, you know, we're four guys figuring out how to throw together a festival uh, that we could cryptographically verify apes to come in and experience a free event where you're going to see incredible talent such as the Strokes and Little Baby and Beck play um, at a warehouse in Brooklyn and then on a massive yacht in, uh, uh, in New York City. 
uh, flash forward where, where no one knew us. And it was like kind of fun, you know, sneaking up to people that I, you know, seen from social media and be like, Hey, I'm Gordon. And then just like have a big hug in a moment. But then flash forward to this year where we threw eight fest at uh, pier 17, where we had 4,000 people a night for four nights in a row. And the moment I walk out, people know who I look like. And so, you know, line forms and I get to like hug and meet everybody. And I'm, I literally just didn't get to move. Uh, the entire time I was there, because that's how many people just wanted to come and say hi to me. And I, I was all too happy to do it. It was like uh, the most incredible experience of my life, just getting to meet all these people that were part of the club that I helped create. It was incredible. Um, so yeah, the, ultimately a blessing. Yeah, I was wondering, so in a previous interview, Greg had said that he sort of, you guys sort of view the board apes as kind of like outcasts. And I was wondering, you know, given the success of Yuga and how you guys are sort of like celebrities at, at events now, do you, do you think of yourselves as outcasts or how has the way that you guys view yourselves changed um, given all of Yuga's success? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, you know, calling them outcasts is, is one way to describe it. I, we designed the apes to be irreverent and kind of like, uh, I, it was kind of like we were thinking of like uh, Andy Warhol factory party from 1969, right? You know, we were like deeply inspired by like, traits from old school hip hop and the velvet underground and, you know, just kind of like uh, kind of weird and quirky and irreverent. I wanted them to like, look like uh, the gr- hanging out, like they were hanging out at the greatest punk club ever, you know, uh, from like 1972, right. You know, right in that era. And that's kind of like the the style. And yeah. You know, we designed the, the club to be like a ramshackle, you know, a roadhouse kind of place in the middle of the Everglades. And we wanted to have that feel and, um, just cause that was the kind of club that we ourselves would, would, would have dreamed to want to be a part of. Um, I do see us still as a little punk rock, to be honest. I, I don't know. And it's kind of lame to admit that, but you know, I don't, uh, I think people coming into the space see like the very, the $4 billion valuation and, and, uh, and, the, the headlines that, you know, we seem to garner, uh, at every twist and turn and think that, uh, you know, oh, we must have been like, I don't know, Silicon Valley bros who knew what they were doing. We had no idea what we were doing, you know, and still at this opportunity, at every, every day, we're still learning how to do everything. It's all, it's all new to us. Um, you know, I, I kind of view us as like a garage band that kind of made it. And um, we're still just trying to keep that authenticity. Uh, and, and frankly, I'm a little precious about it. I try and, um, you know, we, for instance, we don't do a lot of PR, as you're probably aware. We don't do a ton of interviews. You know, we're pretty selective about that just because to me, that's just, you know, a little bit too rock star. You know, like, let's try and keep it as much of a organic, homegrown thing as possible. Greg, still feel like outcasts? <laughs> I, I think, I don't think that we feel like outcasts, but I think that what was core, again, in the, in the early design of 48 Golf Club was like not taking ourselves too seriously. You know, just having that sense of um, playfulness uh, about the club, and and that's still something that I think we want to hold on to very closely with with any of our upcoming activations for BAYC, especially. It's like I want to impress and do like you know show off technical prowess that we can do now with a bigger team, but also remind people like, hey, this is a this is a pretty ridiculous club here, and and we're just here to have fun. Yeah, one one thing I keep hearing you guys kind of harp on is the idea of it being a story, and it was storytelling, and I know that's what Other Side is about too. Um, I'm glad that you know Kate asked about your origin as writers. Do you feel a little bit like as the collection has gotten really big and prominent? I mean, you know, you've got uh, 
I mean, you've got Jimmy Fallon and Paris Hilton are showing their their apes on on TV. That has it gotten away from that? I mean, there are a lot of people in it who probably bought it because they wanted the price to go up. You know, there are kind of flippers who have helped make NFTs big. Now, of course, people who are in the space say it, it's way beyond that now, and it's not about you know the speculation. But there are those people in the space. Um, so has it has it gotten away at all from that kind of initial dream? I think, I mean, it's that, it's that way with every collectible market, right? I mean, it's like you could have the same thing occur in Magic the Gathering cards, right? There are people who are going to want to just buy and flip those Magic the Gathering cards every time there's a new release and try and get the rares. And then there's the people who actually just want to participate in the community, who actually want to experience the thrill and the fun of the game itself, right? And not to say that Board of Yacht Club is a game, but we are releasing games, right? It's like we're, it, there's people who come into the space for the right reasons, and there's people who come into the space uh, for a bunch of other reasons. <laughs> um, but uh, we are always building out everything for the person who bought an ape for $200, frankly, right? It's the person who is still holding on to this day. And we're always thinking about that person when we think about the utility and the things that we're going to be providing. Yeah. And, and speaking of the other side, I mean, let's talk about the other side. Um, I am a gamer. I have played a lot of FPS, ga- FPS games, uh, RPGs, things like this. And um, I'd love to know who is the other side being designed for and, and where are we with this other side metaverse right now? Absolutely. I think what really excites us um, in general about the possibilities between blockchain gaming um, is ownership and the fact that so many of the most brilliant games that have come out in the last 20 years have come from modding communities, from people building on top of things. You know, you have um, Warcraft 3, a pseudonymous developer named Icefrog or whatever creates what what is now thought of as, you know, it was Dota All-Stars, now Dota, and obviously inspired MOBAs like League of Legends and everything else. You have amazing games coming out that are built on top of Skyrim. And a lot of these people have had to go elsewhere to find value for their contributions. They, you know, become content creators on YouTube and it's like smash subscribe to my channel or support my Patreon or do do something else. And the idea of building an open metaverse and a, a platform for UGC content where people can build on top and own the content that they're creating is incredibly powerful. And also though, I think giving somebody just a blank space is never as engaging as when there's a bit of story, when you're showing them, you know, how to do something right first and um, engaging them on a more like emotional level. Um, And so with other side, frankly, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to do both. We want to tell an amazing story, um, you know, about what the fuck these coda things are and this strange world that we found ourselves teleported into. And we also want to give a space for people's creativity to build on top of and enjoy. And part of that too was, you know, we didn't want to do something where it's just like, hey, this is a this is a Web two game, something like you've seen before, and now we're just throwing blockchain elements into it, whatever. There's some, you know, it's a it's a Web two game, but you own your your assets. That's cool too. But what's more special to us was to do something that hadn't been done before, and and that's where we're really proud of. For example, our first trip that we had a couple months back where we had 4,500 concurrent users in this space and just this like sheer density of people in the metaverse is is 
really special to us. Um, and we are going to keep creating more experiences like that for um, our communities are, you know, obviously as it stands, it's other deed holders. Um, and there's a lot of overlap there with, with people who own other Yuga and, and broader NFT projects. Um, that's the, the core community that we're building out for right now, but the metaverse should be for anyone and it should open up and be, and, um, anyone should be able to participate. And, and that's the plan for over time. Yeah. And, and jumping off that, um, I know like other companies sort of have different stances on NFTs and games. And so it sounds like you guys are trying to do something that is a lot more, um, like user focus where, like you said, like users can build in the other side, um, as opposed to what we're sort of seeing with other companies like Minecraft, um, where they have, have banned NFTs and basically said, we don't actually want you guys to be building any sort of NFT layers on top of our, our software. Um, so are you guys really just trying to create like an open sandbox where, where people can really sort of create their own, um, economies or is Yuga going to be controlling the ultimate, like overarching economy? Absolutely. The, the former, I think we're trying to create a, a giant sandbox. I think one way of thinking about it is sort of a semi-decentralized, but absolutely web three native Roblox is one way of looking at it, but you know, obviously with much better looking and, and geared for a, a slightly more adult audience. Um, the, I don't think um, we're doing, I think we're doing things kind of in uh, contrast to the way a lot of gaming companies would do things, Uh, starting with like the iterative development of the game itself. Um, Typically what you would see is you'd maybe get a teaser, a few months later you get a trailer, three years later you get a game. (laughs) You don't know what's going on behind the scenes. At every step of the way, we designed this so that there would be these trips, these experiences where the holders themselves would be able to be sort of like the testers of the world. And they would be able to sort of not only be a part of the iterative journey of the development, and we're calling these people who own another deep voyagers, but they would have early access to things. They would have early access to the modeling and the ODK and the ability to start creating in these worlds. And so co-develop the universe with us. Um, so starting from there, and to me, that was the only authentic way to actually build a real metaverse, right? Like the idea of like, a metaverse that's like a walled garden that's just like built for you. And it's like, okay, here it is. And you know, now, now you're just going to get the features that we give you over time. That's just like another web two MMORPG, maybe with VR goggles. You know I mean, like it didn't seem all that uh, innovative to me. Uh, I like the idea of bringing the community along for the ride. Are you guys big sci-fi guys? I mean, you're writers. Are you, are you big readers? Were you influenced by snow crash or things like that? I've, we've never read Snow Crash, actually. Of course, we know about it. And we know that that's where this, this where the term metaverse comes from. Um, Nicole Muniz, our CEO, she's a much bigger sci-fi reader than we are. We're more like uh, we're not really genre guys. We're more like like literary fiction kind of kind of dudes. Um, I, I asked you guys a little bit about flippers and the speculation in the market. Let's talk about regulation. Um, you know, it's it's been a big topic with every guest we've had on the pod. You know, in your case, it almost applies equally well because we have people on and we ask. You know, the SEC and Gary Gensler appear to think that almost everything is a security. There was that report about the SEC investigating um, Yuga and Bored Apes. Do they think those are securities? Um, What do you make in general of how regulation is going to affect this space? Because uh, I've been doing this a long time and I remember the ICO boom and then it kind of passed. And now it, it looks to me like it's the same era again, where they're going after both new recently launched tokens, in some cases, maybe NFTs, and also still old years ago ICOs. It's kind of everything. 
But at the same time, you ask people and they say, well, we're optimistic because maybe we'll get a, some type of crypto law and clarity. But is that something that you have to spend much time thinking about as you grow? Yeah, I mean, I think from our perspective, it's not that surprising given everything else that's going on, as you mentioned, uh, that NFTs are getting looked at. Policymakers want to know more about Web3 across the board. It's new, it's, it's uncharted waters. And at Yuga, we, we take our position as industry leaders seriously, and we, want, we look forward to the opportunity to work with the rest of the industry and policymakers to help shape the ecosystem. Um, yeah. I think yeah, great answer. It's um, it's also part and par- part part and parcel of a larger thing, which is there are. I mean, there's a lot of Schadenfreude out there when it comes to NFTs, and there are just NFT haters. You know, um, I wanted to ask you guys, you know, whether that's something that you try and ignore, have noticed over time. I mean, in some ways, the apes became, I would argue, the the poster child of all NFTs. At, at least the the PFP profile picture boom. And of course, it's not just apes. There's doodles and cats and punks and all these other collections. Um, but you know, in some ways, the people who are not in crypto, they just kind of associate the entire umbrella category of NFTs with a bored ape. Um, what do you make of that? And will it change? I think that's going to yeah. change. I think that's absolutely going to change over time. Um, I think part of it is you can look at the way. And this is going back to some of. The, First things we were talking about in the podcast, the idea that like at every time there's a new emerging technology, it gets shit on. It's just par for the course, right? But the other aspect of it is you can kind of look at this uh, from the lens of a gamer, right? And for the past like year and a half, gamers have been shitting on NFTs, which is very surprising to me. And part of it is that like you have these big gaming companies come out and say like, we're not going to do anything in NFTs. I can tell you for a fact that every AAA gaming studio right now has a has a Web3 division, right? So they are quickly changing their tune because they see what's going to happen, right? Okay, so to give you this an, an example, you had um, Riot last year made $2 billion selling skins, just cosmetics in League of Legends. Then you have Epic, and just on Fortnite alone, made $4 billion selling cosmetics in Fortnite, right? And all of that value is going in, none of it's coming back out. Anyone who's played an MMORPG understands the value of digital scarcity, understands that digital online connections have meaning, right? And so if you've like grinded your ass off for that sword or that item or that character, or you've won it, or you've just gotten lucky or whatever it is you rolled and you got it, you know how special that item is to you, right? Especially if you've dedicated years of your life to that thing. It's a simple, I think, in terms of changing the sort of perception of the masses, of just waiting for that part of the industry to shift. And so when gamers start to get involved, I think that's when you're going to see this next cascade. I think the next big wave or the next major wave in NFTs will will center around gaming. And you're you're going to start to see people going, oh, wait a minute, I own this sword and I can just sell it and trade it and make money. And it's like, and I don't have to, I don't need anyone's permission for the first time basically ever. I think that's going to change a lot of hearts and minds. Yeah, I'll elaborate on that a little bit. You know, there's that old Satoshi Nakamoto quote from like a forum where he responds saying, you know, if you don't believe it or don't understand, sorry, like I don't have the time to explain it to you. I think for a while there, that feels like the position that a lot of the the NFT industry was was taking towards things. Um, that's certainly not the position that we want to take. Um, I think that we feel very confident that this is just better for consumers. Once we figure out the on-ramps, once we figure out um, the safety and security and onboarding and education here, 
that this is just not the same kind of sunk cost systems that people are used to and that there's a whole lot of power to that. And already, obviously, some of the biggest narratives of the past year have been almost completely solved. And it's, you know, resulted in like a whisper and, and, and where, you know, last year, a lot of people wanted to talk about the potential environmental effects of the Ethereum blockchain. Here we are a month and a half out from, or less than that, I think, of, you know, the Ethereum merge and everything now is 99.95% like uh, more environmentally friendly than it was. And I think as more, we have more and more unlocks uh, along these lines um, that I think it'll be a tidal wave of interest. That will... And I think more and more luxury brands are going to enter the space. We're seeing it. We saw with Tiffany's, with CryptoPunks, and then um, not exactly a luxury brand, but an incredible brand, Adidas, the way they entered the space. I think that's going to onboard a ton of new people. I think part of the problem, right, is that people will look at a board ape and they'll go, why would anyone buy, or just an NFT in general, profile picture especially, and go, why would I spend any money on this? It's just a JPEG or it's just a PNG, actually, to be more technically accurate, right? And it's like, why, why, why would I spend any money on a digital asset? Well, again, the gamer side, I think that's going to solve itself, right? Because that's going to be a, a massive community who is already going to intuitively understand once they see the utility. But for the broader masses, I think it's a little bit about education, right? Um, they don't, know perhaps that when you buy a board ape, you get access to a club and you don't understand the sort of social connections that that might uh, improve or that, that it might give you access to in real life events that are pretty freaking cool or that it might give you access to exclusive merch drops from luxury brands or that might give you access to mobile games and competitions and all kinds of, uh, you know, invite only discords and all kinds of uh, opportunities that come with it, right? There's like this whole world of utility that we at Yuga Labs, for instance, have been building out for the past, you know, almost two years. And I don't know if they understand that piece of the puzzle. They might not also understand the piece of the puzzle that the intellectual property is, is attached to that NFT, right? That you can then commercialize that ape. And we've seen apes who've made a tremendous amount of money, in fact, uh, just from commercializing their ape and, and being very creative with it. Again, you see guys like Snoop Dogg create, and his son creating entire brands of ice creams and, and uh, cheeseburgers centered around the intellectual property of their board ape. So I think there's a lot to unpack there, and it's a little difficult to like communicate very succinctly to someone who's outside the space going, why would I buy a JPEG for any amount of money, uh, let alone a great you, amount? You guys must have personal friends or family who've literally asked you that point blank. Like, I don't get it, you know? Interestingly enough, uh, not after a certain point, because <laughs> if they're friends or family, they've investigated what we're actually doing here, and they're like, oh, man, this is so cool. Most of the time, they're just like, man, I wish... Uh, I knew about this this space sooner because this is interesting. Like the moment you kind of learn what's actually going on from the utility side in NFTs, I think that's the moment that people are like, oh, I didn't understand the full smorgasbord of what was available here. I just thought this was just about JPEGs. Not to say there's anything wrong with just digital art. That's a whole other side of it that I think is fascinating and very cool. And provenance is, is a meaningful thing here. Um, but to me, the thing that I'm most interested in is the online digital community and, and, and social aspect, and then also how we can bridge the digital physical. Yeah, some, something I'm curious about when it comes to sort of licensing and, and board apes is there are, there are so many different ape-based brands now, but do people, do you think people actually want to wear someone else's ape as a shirt or as a hat? This is sort of some things that I've wondered, you know, because we do see um, apes making, putting their ape on water or putting it on a hat or putting on a shirt. But, but I, when I think about the NFTs that I own, I, I kind of want to rep them just because I own them. And, but I don't really think that 
I would necessarily want to wear someone else's NFT. So I'm curious to hear uh, either of your thoughts on on that. And and do do people is the relationship surrounding NFTs going to change? Do you think people want to wear someone else's NFT as as a hat, for example? I, I do actually, and I think it. But it, it's very dependent, right? Just because they own the ape doesn't necessarily mean it's a marketable thing, right? I think it depends on what kind of work and effort they put into it, right? Snoop Dogg is a perfect example, right? He's building an entire brand around his ape. Um, and there's an entire world being created there. We're seeing Timbaland do the same thing with his ape, right? He's creating an entire world around his ape. Um, and I think, you know, it really depends. It's like any intellectual property. Just because you have a, a cartoon character of something doesn't necessarily mean it's marketable. But if you build a world around it, if you are creative, I, there's a bunch of brands that are now doing stuff with their apes where I personally am like, wow, that looks amazing. I want to buy that sweater. I want to buy that hoodie. I want to buy that uh, beanie or whatever it is and you know it's not my ape i think it's just fucking cool yeah there's the really sick uh like um sweaters that were being sold at fred siegel a couple of weeks ago that were incredibly um classy like yeah i i snagged a, a 500 cardigan uh with somebody else's mutant on yeah was it cashmere too i mean it looked it looked amazing it looked like yeah i, I, really, I, I, I yeah i'm, I'm, I'm gonna order it. some it really looked really cool yeah, yeah. What do you guys make of of um, speaking of like luxury items that apes? It kind of it kind of seems like apes have have become status symbols in a way um, for for celebrities, um, and then they're everybody's making it their profile picture and sort of using it as like a digital flex. Is that what you guys think, or do you just think that celebrities just are are interested in the club and that's why they're they're getting involved? Like. Or is it some kind of mixture where people are sort of buying in because they're like, oh, this is the next like digital version of a Louis Vuitton bag or this is sort of a way that I can virtually signify that I'm a part of something that is exclusive? I think it's definitely a mixture. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it was any one thing. Um, I think there's a lot of power when people understand, you know, what, what NFTs are really good for, which is, you know, authenticity, scarcity, and then how is that manifesting itself? And for us, it's like, you know, the scarcity of being a member of this club and, and um, the kind of reception and love and, and community that forms around that, I think is extremely powerful. Um, getting to know other people in the space, I, you know, this whole thing, I don't think it comes as any surprise that this was born out of COVID um, and became such a way for people to connect with each other in a deep way on Discord. Um, and now it's finding more and more ways of like instantiating itself in the physical world and people making those kind of real connections that way. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a mix of things. And I think one other point I'd like to make is, you know, while we've seen that reticence from gamers on, you know, what an NFT is and what it might be good for, it's interesting to see how luxury brands have really leaned in. Um, and, and deeply understanding those aspects of like, hey, their whole business is authenticity and scarcity. And so they're very excited and just want to figure out how to do it um, authentically because they know that's just as important as, as the scarcity and authentic their brand and, and all that. And that's why it's really special to see some brands like Gucci and LVMH and you know Tiffany's and, and some of, I think we saw yesterday that Ramoa is doing something now with Artifact and um, that's really cool. And I think another part of what's probably attracting celebrities. In space. Yeah. In some ways it also takes time. Like I respectfully to apes, I kind of understand it a little more with punks because they're so old. I mean, you know, people call them ancient, obviously nothing in this space is ancient, but because of like when crypto punks date back to, um, I sort of see that, that aspect, like they've become more, 
almost like generic symbols, but something I'm noodling on. Um, but I, I want to make sure I ask you guys, there's a couple like fun type personal questions we always like to ask our guests. One is uh, we've been talking about NFTs, NFTs, NFTs. You know, we heard about other collections and what you guys think. What about uh, the coins? What are in your bags? I think, uh, you know, <laughs> Greg, it's, it's worth mentioning, you know, your last name is Solano. So I don't know if you're a big Solana guy, but what do you guys hold in terms of crypto? Yeah, I, I haven't bought a new, any new crypto in a long time. You know, it, it's usually if I was buying it with a very explicit purpose of buying an NFT, really. Um, but prior to um, founding Yuga, yeah, I, I was coming back from, from uh, not having bought anything for, for years. I, I still hold a lot of my 2017 bags. I still, you know. There's a ripple bag somewhere that I can't access uh, since it was on my Coinbase wallet, or, or I could like withdraw it, but I can't sell it there. Anyway, um, and uh, but my last name is Solano, and so when I saw Solana um, in in late 2020, um, yeah, I, I bought a little bag of that and um, have, have held on to that as well. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Ethereum and ApeCoin. <laughs> yeah. A loyalist. Fair. I'm trying to think, Kate, what else? Oh, I, one other thing I want to make sure I ask you guys, you know, as, as writers, um, you know, I asked about Snow Crash, but who do you read? What are your, what are your favorite books? It's a great question. Um, I've said this many, many times, but my, I think my favorite uh, writer is uh, David Foster Wallace um, and a book called Infinite Jest in particular is my, my all-time favorite book. Um, but that's, uh, you know, I've been saying that for like, uh, 15 years and I, I probably should get a new favorite book to it. It's, I feel like that book, uh, has all this, uh, connotation to it. It's like, there's a, well, there's a type of like M MFA yeah. writer type person who's like really big on that. And then there's like a bunch of people who are like, fuck you for even saying that you pretentious asshole. It became yeah. like a punchline. I actually wrote my college thesis on, on DFW, but specifically on his essays, wow. his nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah, his nasties are phenomenal. Yeah, and I, I kind of think Infinite Jest is like a little overrated, a little bit loose and baggy. But you're you're totally right that at some point in the last five or six years, it became like an uncool stereotype to like him. It was like, yeah. oh, the intellectual, like literary white male. It's like, oh, okay. I know, I know. I feel like it's a little unfair. You know, I, what I tell people is like, you know, yeah, it's a very long book. And yeah, there's a lot of uh, obtuse footnotes. And yes, the first two to 300 pages are a little bit boring. And yes, should they have been cut? Like maybe. A lot of asterisks. It's like, maybe, yeah, probably. But it really becomes a deeply, deeply entertaining book. And the book itself is about the nature of entertainment. And, uh, and I think it's very appropriate for someone in this day and age to read uh, as it relates to sort of the addictive quality of entertainment and social media in particular. So I would recommend it to just about anybody. Greg? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not on the DFW train. That was like our, our first argument was, it was literally how we met. about that. Um, it was just, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I, I'd say, honestly, the thing that stuck with me the most over the, the past years is, is just Haruki Murakami, which I didn't find him until much later in life. It was actually like another one of those things. It's kind of the same as, as DFW. It's like if everybody's reading it and everybody loves it, then I like avoid it on purpose in order to like not have that in my like, my like, I don't even want the context of it. I want to create something else. Um, but uh, I just find it so enjoyable and, and Wiley like hates it. And it's like, yeah, you're going to read about like 
making, you know, listening to jazz while making pasta and then like something falls out of the sky. And it's like, yes. Two, I, I, two I, very I, different I, novelists. Yeah. It's, it's another, another author that I've like come back around to like, yeah. I have a tattoo of him, Kurt Vonnegut. And when I was a kid, it was like, you know, 15 years old, 13 years old, you're reading Kurt Vonnegut and it's kind of blowing your mind. Right. I think it does that for most people. And um, you know, here's this like beautiful secular humanist who had gone through World War II and it's just like um, has a wealth of suffering and knowledge and he's just so unbelievably funny. And so as a, as a young person, you read him and that, that blows your mind. But and then I, I got older and I was like, no, I'm more pretentious than that. You know, I love more high flute and stuff. You know, that's that's just for kids. But it's weird as I get older, I'm going back to him and just realizing, you know, that was really the purest thing. You know, just that like that um, that message of, of secular humanism coming back to that over and over again, just like um, being a good steward for humanity kind of thing. I don't know. It, it, it's, it's maybe I'm just getting old and sappy, but it's like moving me quite again. Yeah, Wiley, you have a lot of tattoos, so I have to ask, um, when Basie tattoo? I know, I feel like I, it's been so long, and there's been so many BAYC tattoos that I almost am like, is it going to be like an albatross moment when I finally get it? Is that like, when I post that on Twitter, is that the moment where it all just comes crumbling down? You know, it's like it's like Garga, like he, he'll never change his profile picture, even though he, he actually doesn't like his ape. <laughs> It's like oh, <laughs> that's great. Wait, we're breaking some news here. My ape is fine. Everyone else, like you know, no, my ape is great. But I do like my mutant better. And uh, but I, I'm there. We are superstitious, yeah. and so like if I change my because even when uh, you know there, there's obviously like Nifty Taylor and these other people like dressing up your ape, putting it in a suit, or doing these other things. Um, I will just not do it out of pure superstition. I'm like, no, it's got to stay there forever. Or, or so. So, there. Greg, who owns your dream ape? Yeah. Um, I like the mohawk apes, um, and I like the zombies. Um, I like the orange backgrounds. Wiley hates the orange backgrounds. I, I don't know that I've, I've never like found a specific one and been like, that's my guy. Did you, what you did know? you just say about me and the orange background? Uh oh. I don't hate the orange background. I'm 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 pro orange background. When we first started, the biggest fight that Greg and I have had, maybe maybe the biggest fight we've had in the two years that we've been working on this, was about the backgrounds. And yes, I was not the biggest proponent for brighter colored backgrounds. Just mm. FYI, I was more in favor of the muted, and we came to a, a middle ground where we incorporated both. But I've come to I've come to embrace the the orange the orange gang. I already um, just tweeted that the BAYC co-founder hates all your apes that have an orange background. <laughs> This is great. This is great. It's out there. Um, no, I, uh, I I love. There's a zombie on the on the site itself that was there from day one that I think is very fucking punk rock and cool. It's got like uh, the the black t-shirt with the monkey image on it. It's with the X out eyes. I think it's a very cool zombie. Ape. Um, I uh, but actually I think my ape is my favorite ape at this point. Like I don't. It's it's it is my dream ape. It is my forever ape. I feel. Like I dream in, in like, you know, like as that ape, it's like I'm G Gordon Goner. I'm not really Wiley Aaron now anymore. Nice. Very early on, you were getting some pretty ridiculous offers before people even knew that was like, no, that's the founder's ape. Like you're not yeah. going to get it. I think it was like, yeah, certain whales were like, what the hell? Why is he yeah. not accepting this? Maybe they sale. can get yours if you're trying to get rid of it. No, you yeah. cannot. No. The, the leopard spots. Yeah, he's no, stuck no. with it. This he's stuck like, with it. This is the grail. Nice. This is well. This will definitely be the first um, yeah. episode thumbnail that has NFT PFPs as the image. So that'll be oh, cool. great. Nice. Yeah, that's cool. Um, really awesome. There's so much more to talk about, but we've we've gone long, and we appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. This is great. Nice. 
This has been GM from Decrypt. I'm Dan Roberts. I'm Stacey Elliott. And I'm Stephen Graves. 